0: So, welcome back to the Politicking Podcast. Unfortunately, we're not joined by Alex Woodward this week. So, me and regular co-host Maeve are indeed joined by William King. Do you want to introduce yourself, Will?
1: Hello. Yes, I'm uh, substitute number one, or uh, I don't know, I've been waiting on the bench patiently, but uh, (laughs) thanks very much to Alex for stepping aside for this one. No, I'm joking, of course, I'm uh, the... News editor at University Radio York at the minute, um, who uh, helped produce and publish this podcast, I believe. So, thanks very much for having me on today, Alex.
0: Oh no, thank you for coming on. We needed to we needed to readdress the the dynamic of the one on one that would have been me and Maeve. So,
2: <laughs> yeah, needed to mix it up a little bit.
0: Yeah. So in this episode, uh, if you haven't guessed by the title, we're going to be talking about Northern Ireland and how it differs from the rest of the UK in terms of its politics. So, let's get into it. So, in terms of Northern Irish politics, there's a real interesting background that you can go and have a look at and we'll try and give a brief outline as to what it is. There is a conflict that sets the scene for politics in Northern Ireland and it's the Troubles which goes on from 1969 all the way up to 1997 when the Good Friday Agreement comes into force. It was an ethno-nationalist conflict so it was divided on ethnic lines so you had Protestants on one side and Catholics on the other and Catholics sided with the idea of republicanism and the fact that Northern Ireland should either be an independent state on its own, away from British rule, or should rejoin the Republic of Ireland on the island of Ireland as a whole nation. And then you had the Unionists who were mainly Protestant who believed that Northern Ireland should remain part of the UK. It was a violent struggle between four main parties. You had the state security forces, of both Ireland and the UK, that includes the police, the security services like uh, the army and the navy and so on, and then you had the paramilitaries on both sides. So in the main, the Republican paramilitaries were derivatives of the IRA, the main belligerent being the provisional IRA, and then on the unionist side you had the UVF, the Ulster Volunteer Force, the Ulster Freedom Fighters, and another one which has completely escaped me.
1: The Ulster Defence Force, it might be.
0: There we go, it's the Ulster Defence Force. So all these four belligerents came into Northern Ireland and really sort of conducted a violent campaign against each other where atrocities were committed on all four sides of this conflict in order to try and sort out what is the Northern Irish question, basically. And this conflict has its roots in Irish Home Rule and the desire for Ireland to lead itself... And then the partition of Ireland in 1921 was the reasoning behind the fact that you have the troubles. I think that's um, about as simple as I want to go.
1: You said 1997, but I, I'm pretty sure it's 1998, the Good Friday Agreement. Yes,
0: yes, it, it was 1998, actually, the Good Friday Agreement. I, f- I think I'm thinking of the uh, ceasefire that the IRA called in 1997, which was only the second ceasefire that they called throughout the conflict. So in terms of a background of politics in Northern Ireland, we've discussed the main political parties in the UK, the Conservatives, Labour, the Lib Dems, Greens and so on. What we don't see in Northern Ireland is Labour and the Lib Dems standing candidates in their elections. But the the Tories do, but they're not that successful. Maeve, the, the alliances that the Labour Party and the Lib Dems have set up in Northern Ireland, do you want to explain a bit more on them?
2: Yeah, so Labour generally ally themselves with the Social Democratic and Labour Party, or SDLP. SDLP um, actually advocate for like the reunification of Ireland and more devolution of powers. They currently only have about 12 seats in the Northern Ireland Assembly, Um, but yet they were very popular during the Troubles. They tended to be popular with Catholics and Irish nationalists or otherwise known as Republicans. Lib Dems, however, ally themselves with the Alliance Party. So the Alliance Party is a party that's generally middle of the ground. They don't take a stance on whether they're Republican or unionist, but rather they want want to work on a alliance between the two.
0: They're quite like the Lib Dems in the UK. They're quite just sort of center of the road. Exactly don't take a position on anything.
2: But there is generally the vote for those who don't want to take a stance on whether they are Unionist or um, Republican and that want peace and and so on. That tends to be the vote that um, those types of people go towards.
0: And you see this as an overarching theme of Northern Irish politics. Parties aren't really split on the left-right ideology that you get no, in they're the UK. Not. But a a unionist and nationalist um, sort of ideology, and people do yeah. vote down historical lines, and there is that sort of if you are Catholic, you will vote a certain way; if you are Protestant, you'll exactly. vote a certain way.
2: And that's the most important thing to remember with Northern Irish politics. You would never find a Protestant who would choose to vote for SLP or Sinn Fein. They would always change their votes depending on, on between. Different unionist parties and vice versa. They're very much strong historical lines that are not crossed.
0: And we've mentioned the Good Friday Agreement. Um, in the future, there is a, a, I believe there's a clause in there that allows for a referendum on Northern Irish independence from Great Britain if there is a desire for it. It's left very in sort of flowery language and very sort of open to interpretation, <laughs> unfortunately so you can't draw the line as to what would class as the mandate to have that referendum Will yeah
1: this is it the Good Friday agreement which um, they signed in Belfast on Good Friday which was the 10th of April in 1998 so yeah basically the agreement says that for the time being Northern Ireland is a part of the UK and it's got its devolved government which is the um, the Northern Irish executive which is formed from the Northern Irish Assembly and that will be in place until and here's here's what it says is the majority of people in both northern ireland and the republic of ireland wished otherwise and as you say alex we're not totally sure what that what would be the mandate for that um should that happen the british and irish governments are under a binding obligation to implement that choice so so that's what the the good friday agreement says i'm I'm
0: interested to hear your guys opinions on this what would you say is a clear mandate for that referendum to happen because for me personally and i'm saying this as a as a as a devout unionist um i'd say that votes for republican parties in both ireland and northern ireland so if sinn fein got into a majority government in ireland and if sinn fein got into a majority of the power sharing executive which we'll come on to later in northern ireland that would create a mandate at least to say maybe we should be having this referendum
2: yeah, not necessarily just Sinn Fein, though. No. I think that also, if there's Sinn Fein and SDLP and potentially even the Alliance Party may come together to um, decide to trigger that referendum because they have a right to it. And I think that obviously, as um, UNIS parties are uh, leading the Northern Ireland executive, it's in their best interest not to trigger this referendum, really.
1: I wonder who would have the power to, because I remember with the Scottish independent referendum, which we had 2014... Yeah, 2014. Um, that it was at, It's actually Westminster who has the power to say, yes, you can have the referendum. And pre- presumably that would be the case for Northern Ireland, but obviously the Republic of Ireland would have their own options on that. So it would be interesting to see how that would play out.
0: There would definitely need to be lobbying from Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, like there was from the uh, the Scottish National Party once. Because yeah. as soon as they took over the uh, Holyrood elections mm. in 2007, it took them seven years to be able to get this referendum in 2014. So I think they need to show strong, consistent results first for them to be able to go, here we go, this is the mandate we have mm. now.
2: Absolutely agree. That being said, I do believe that it... It would be strange for Westminster not to agree to it, I think, just simply Mm. because that could lead to a whole load of new issues or bringing up old issues and and so on.
0: Yeah, it would be very, very naive of any government to say no to something like that in Northern Ireland.
2: Mm -hmm. I mean, Brexit was already a huge tremor in that sort of area. There was lots of issues that came up from Brexit about this border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, and what that meant for the Good Friday Agreement, yeah. so I do believe it's in the Westminster's best interest to ensure that any potential triggering of that mandate goes through smoothly and without any issues
1: you would hope that that a smooth process would be everybody's aim yeah
2: mm-hmm.
0: yeah absolutely
1: despite despite the outcome, hopefully
0: you you definitely want to extend peace on the island of Ireland. You don't mm-hmm. want to be able to have the blame laid at your feet for getting something wrong and possibly reigniting a conflict that was so destructive. Yeah. Absolutely. Over 3
1: 3000 deaths I think, did I did I see in the troubles? Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh there was some and it wasn't just the deaths either. There was some horrific things that happened. I, I don't want to mark this podcast as explicit through graphic exp- yeah. explanation of the violence, but you can go and look for yourself as to what both sides would do to each other and how they partook in either trying to get freedom or trying to stop uh, northern ireland becoming an independent state
2: mm-hmm. and these things these things all have meanings and symbolism aligned with them and we still see today there's the orange marches every july 12th and yeah. you know there's the the murals and so on, and they it is consistent. There's these constant myths and symbols and meanings to everything that go along, go, goes on. It's definitely a very interesting thing to look at. So I definitely recommend going and learning more.
1: It is interesting it. if if you can go to Northern Ireland and having a, a drive around, seeing flags of. All colors hung up in places it 's just something i hadn 't experienced um, mm-hmm. else i haven 't experienced elsewhere so it's it is really interesting and the, there 's some great museums and places you can go to to find out lots more on all of that
0: My uh, dissertation supervisor dur- during my undergraduate degree was northern Irish and he grew up in belfast and he always told he always told me about how they would identify each other. There's a really sort of weird wordplay game that everyone plays in Northern Ireland. Absolutely.
2: My mum has told me the exact same thing. My mum um, is Irish Catholic. She grew up in Derry, or just outside Derry. London Derry,
0: if you're a unionist.
2: Mm. (laughs) Yeah, that was stroke city, let's say. Um, As you can see, you've probably guessed my alignment in this whole situation. Um, But... Yes, she said that there's often when you meet someone who's Northern Irish, you have to have two, probably two sentences of conversation and then you'll know no, not only, you know, where they grew up and so on is what t- tells you whether they're Unionist or Republican, but it's also like sometimes even just their name.
0: It can be on name, school, where mm. they grew up. And realistically, the one I always knew about was what you call the city that we just mentioned, whether you call it Derry or London Derry. Mm.
1: Also, maybe this is a little less of a serious one, but pronunciation of the letter that comes after G in the alphabet. People have told me it is a divide uh, in, in that part of the world.
0: Moving on from that, we mentioned earlier about the power sharing executive that occurs in Northern Ireland. What it is, is basically sort of a compromise that happens, that you've got a executive that makes decisions for northern ireland and there is a power sharing structure which means that the two main parties that are elected at northern irish assembly elections form this power sharing government
2: if you want to know the proper term for that consociationalism there you go there you go
0: (laughs) i wasn't gonna say it because i didn't know how to pronounce
1: it
2: (laughs) (laughs) i just (laughs) i just wrote a whole three word essay on that one very very interesting stuff
1: yeah all for this podcast All of this
2: podcast, you lucky listeners.
1: All of of research, (laughs) there we go.
0: So basically what happens is the largest party gets the first minister role and the second largest party gets the deputy first minister role and they co-chair the executive as a result of how the, the country of Northern Ireland votes decides how the executive is made up Obviously, the largest party get more seats on the executive and the second largest party get less seats on the executive. Mm. But for the first time ever in the 2016 Northern Irish Assembly elections, the second largest party, which was Sinn Féin at the time, were actually offered a chance to form um, an opposition, which would mean that they wouldn't be in the power-sharing executive and they would actually form more of a Westminster-style Government where you have what is at the moment the DUP being the leading party and the party of government, and then Sinn Fein being what would be the Labour Party in the UK acting as Her Majesty's most loyal opposition.
2: Yeah, and that's actually really interesting and is actually probably what has triggered this sort of moderation of the extreme parties, which we might go on to a bit later on in more detail. But yeah, you know. The Sinn Féin now um, are definitely now acting more as an opposition, and you can see that in terms of COVID uh, restrictions and guidelines and lockdowns and stuff like that. You can see evidence of that.
1: They didn't take up the offer, though, uh, did they? They didn't, but no. they
2: act as though they did, which is interesting. And was
1: was that symbolic, not taking up the offer, do we think?
2: I think it
0: was quite symbolic because they I had thought this, so. they had this opportunity to go, no we're going to oppose and actually they chose probably what was best for northern ireland absolutely admittedly the parliament dissolved a year later actually no oh got eight months later in january 2017 and it was reformed in january 2020 after three years due to a renewable heat incentive scandal yeah there was a massive deadlock right and nothing got done in northern ireland so they were under direct rule from westminster for about three years Mm. With the people of Northern Ireland not really being able to get much because obviously they don't have a working executive, they don't have a working parliament, and it was quite—I'd say it was quite a tough time for them. You know, they—they yeah, they didn't get what they needed. Luckily, they have managed to reconvene and reform with Arlene Foster, the leader of the DUP, as First Minister, and Sinn Fein's Michelle O'Neill as Deputy First Minister following the new decade new approach agreement and if you want to read more about this I will put some links in the description for you.
2: I do feel though that um, in terms of symbolism in terms of Sinn Féin turning down that offer that was quite important in upholding this idea of consociationalism and sharing powers because that is the whole I think that's actually the glue to this peace process and to the continual peace in Northern Ireland. Is yes, that power-sharing?
1: After all the work that went into the Good Friday Agreement and, and the fact that it was reached and signed, it's pleasing, really, that, that it, it's continuing.
0: I think just to cap off, uh, when talking about the Good Friday Agreement, I'm going to, again... I, th- I think we mentioned this in the Labour Party episode, but I'm again going to say if you want to watch a really interesting piece of film about it uh, there's a sort of a drama film uh, starring Ju- Julie Walters called Mo and it centres around who was the Northern Irish Secretary at the time of the GFA the Good Friday Agreement uh, Mo Molan who had come in as part of Tony Blair's New Labour and had managed to get both sides of the conflict to the table in order to negotiate peace and there's always a, there's the funny story of both sides are really having a you know, a really big argument about something. And Mo Molan, who was going through cancer treatment at the time and chemotherapy, takes her wig off, starts scratching her head and is like, oh, gosh, this is itchy. is almost like a put-down as though, like, oh, yeah, you're arguing about this, but look what I'm going through and I'm still here.
1: I'd love to watch that. Julie Walters, did you say?
0: Yes, and it's on all four, and I'll put the link in the description. But I think that sort of wraps up this sort of first half of the episode. But in the next half of the episode we will be talking about the parties that exist in Northern Ireland and we'll talk a little bit about who they are and what they stand for and so on and so forth if you haven't guessed already as to what some of them do stand for. So there are two main Unionist parties in the Northern Ireland uh, if we're going to discount the Conservatives because realistically they're never going to get anywhere in Northern Ireland you've got the UUP which is the Ulster Unionist Party and the DUP which is the Democratic Unionist Party. In terms of if you can put Northern Irish parties on a sort of political spectrum because that's something we like to do, we like to put everyone in their own little box and Mm -hmm. say that they exist here and that's about it Uh, the UUP are quite Centre-right, almost. They are akin to what David Cameron's Conservatives were. And they used to be the biggest party in Northern Ireland and the largest unionist voice and the largest unionist party in Northern Ireland. And they were replaced by the more right-wing DUP over the past few elections in Northern Ireland. Mm. And now the DUP are a very right-wing party, akin to sort of Farage's UKIP. And they haven't got a good track record of being liberal on social issues. They have opposed abortion, they have opposed same-sex marriage in Northern Ireland, and despite replacing the UUP as the largest unionist voice in Northern Ireland, they themselves are slowly losing the unionist versus nationalist debate in Northern Ireland. I think that's fair to say. I think it's fair to say that their extreme views on such social issues like abortion and same-sex marriage have almost lost support for unionism as a whole because the DUP are the representative of unionism in Northern Ireland and they are the almost the voice of unionism in Northern Ireland at the moment. It's yeah.
1: interesting that, yes, they they certainly are the, um, the biggest party in Northern Ireland and I'm just looking for, for how many seats they have in Westminster. Yeah, here we go. So they've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight seats in the House of Commons and they've got too many to count in in the northern ireland assembly but because they are the the main northern irish party in the house of commons and particularly when we had Theresa may's hung parliament and she was relying on votes from the dup we heard a lot from them so in the the uk wide media and so the voice of the dup to people not in northern ireland became pretty much the only thing they were hearing from northern irish politics which I think has definitely skewed some opinions there.
0: Throughout Theresa May's premiership, there's a really interesting story that I can I can say here, um, and it's that at national conferences for the Conservative Party, the DUP were also invited along. So at party conferences, you have like the main stuff that goes along, and then you have like fringe events as well. And the DUP would always host like a fringe event with their leader Arlene Foster and all the other prominent DUP figures
1: and 38 seats in the Northern Ireland Assembly the DUP have. Yeah. Um I've I've just found out um and just to go back to the UUP briefly as we said the 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 slightly closer to the middle Ulster Unionist Party. Uh they don't have any seats in the House of Commons but they have got um something a bit closer to 10 in the Northern Ireland Assembly.
0: They they're on a bit of a downward traje- trajectory at the moment as opposed to the dup who sort of went up um on an upwards trajectory and have sort of really sort of leveled off and maybe sort of moving a bit further further down in in terms of their standing it's all, it's important to note as well that other unionist parties do exist but they are not nearly as successful as the uup and dup
1: yeah the um we're sort of halfway through an administration in northern ireland at the minute as you said um there was the the direct rule from Westminster for some time but the next election will be in May 2022 so a little while um and it'll be interesting to see at that election where things stand
0: yeah I feel as though that could be the power shift in in an election I think when when you look at political parties in Northern Ireland yes the SDLP are on the Republican side but they're not nearly as strong as Sinn Féin nowhere near and you've got two unionist parties in the UUP and the DUP who almost steal votes off each other
1: yeah yeah it's an interesting one that the the sort of the divide within yeah uh within as you say putting people into their place and putting people into their box yeah it is
2: actually a sort of downfall of power sharing is this it it leads to this sort of ethnic outbidding of party saying well i can defend our our side better than this other party can and which can lead to like splits within ethnic groups and it is it is interesting um having that split
0: if you look at voting patterns um, in northern ireland the unionists used to consistently get around 50 percent up until the 2019 westminster elections and the nationalists seem to get around about 40 give or take two percent but in the 2019 westminster elections the unionists lost about six percent of their votes which all sort of went to what is other parties so that like the alliance and other non-aligned parties to unionism or nationalism
1: may have been independence too uh, independence in northern too. ireland
0: and i think that's I think if you, the Unionist parties want to survive, I think they need to become almost a, a broad church and just call themselves the Unionist Party, because otherwise they're going to keep on taking votes off each other, and then they will eventually lose to the Nationalists. As as, as a Unionist, I'd, I'd prefer Northern Ireland to stay within the UK. Obviously, I don't want to deny their right to self self determination, but yeah, I think that's if the, if they want Unionism to be able to stay as the Dominant sort of idea in Northern Ireland. They need to make sure that they're not there taking votes off each other and there's a strong unionist voice on one side.
2: I would agree, and that could be the reason as to why Sinn Féin is slowly gaining the traction that it is and is now on course to be the largest Republican party in uh, Northern Ireland. Then I would just talk about this Republican party of Sinn Féin as it has quite a long history They tend not to take their seats in Westminster as a form of protest at the Westminster rule, and it did have links during the Troubles. It wasn't very popular as there was links to the IRA through its leader Gerry Adams. Now um, the IRA are obviously this paramilitary group that you know were really involved in the violence to do the Troubles. um, Hence why. Sinn Féin were not as appreciated or liked in that way. They are technically the only United Ireland party. The SDLP are a more moderated version of Sinn Féin in the sense that they are a United Ireland party, but they just don't do as well in elections now. So yeah, which leads us on to sort of modern day Northern Irish politics. So as I said before, Sinn Féin are gaining this traction, but that is not because of the more extreme views of Republicans, it seems to me to be due to the fact that there are these extreme ethnic parties are actually moderating their views. They aren't just focusing on ethnicity and ethno-nationalism and so on. They're actually opposing views. So Sinn Fein's come out as an opposition to the COVID restrictions, calling for longer lockdowns and so on. Um, So they've moderated their positions so to use this power sharing uh, institution in Northern Ireland and my mum was, as she now lives in the UK and sort of looks on Northern Irish politics, she was getting a little bit worried that Sinn Féin was doing so well in elections but in reality... It's not because people are getting more extreme, like I said before, it's because these parties are moderating themselves.
1: It's interesting, Maeve, what you say about the association with the IRA. We are coming into a time now, I think, with the Good Friday Agreement having been signed in 1998. I saw a great programme on this with Patrick Keelty a few years ago. I think it was actually 2018 when there was the anniversary, and we are reaching a stage now where we have the first voters who who don't have such strong memories of that time so perhaps those associations and of course there's the heritage and people's families and the stories they've told but in terms of what's actually in people's memories that might be fading now and that might be something which we see lead to change
2: yeah definitely i do feel that's a positive thing to come out of you know how well the good friday agreement has lasted and continues to last in northern ireland the the links to ira have sort of dwindled and in a sense because the ira are no longer active
0: the provisionals are no longer active there is a sorry yes yeah there's a there's a splinter group at the moment who call themselves the official ira i believe They're, they're not gaining the support that the provisionals had but they are they are still alive and kicking but Sinn Féin have really managed their image quite well by moving people who had these associations with the IRA away from the front line of their politics and moving away from people who are, to some people, considered terrorists and to some people considered freedom fighters. I think that's been a really good strategy on their part in order to become or appear more of a legitimate political force.
1: Yeah, Interestingly, what 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 we were saying before about people's views becoming sort of less strong or or less um, what's what's the right word here um, ultimate maybe in one direction or the other, but whilst people are still sitting in where they where they sit on the sort of the Protestant Catholic or the Unionist Loyalist divide, I saw a story recently. Which I think is probably worth mentioning is this thing about how Belfast City Council has given the green light to bilingual street signs. The use of the Irish language is a a really interesting topic in Northern Ireland, and um, I have family over there too who can't believe that um, that it's it's the um, the sort of the political weapon that it is. Like, because in Wales, for example, people speak Welsh and and people don't don't think as think too much about it um some people speak Welsh and some people don't but um this policy in Belfast means that people living there are able to apply for an Irish language street sign where they live and then 15% of residents on the electoral register have to have to support that for for it to be approved and this has been backed by Sinn Féin because um they're saying that it's It's central to the ongoing growth of the Irish language and it's a part of the fabric of the city now. But you've guessed it, the DUP are not so pleased with this. Um, Many people regard the addition of an Irish street sign as cultural branding of their area. A DUP spokesman is quoted as. That's reading from a BBC article on the topic.
0: I think the DUP, if they want to preserve their, their power, need to become a lot more... Open to to compromise and stuff like that. If you look Absolutely. at the uh, if you look at the opinion polls for the next Northern Irish Assembly election, as as Will mentioned earlier, the DUP have been overtaken by Sinn Féin, and Sinn Féin are on course to be the largest party. The Alliance are on course to actually surpass the DUP as the second largest uh, party in the Northern Irish Assembly, going from what was under ten percentage points to around about eighteen. And if depending on what sort of poll you look at, the DUP are sort of averaging around about twenty-three to nineteen percent. So the Alliance are becoming sort of a real option for people. And
2: I I think that's just indicative of the political environment that people are in right now. I mean, one example of this conflict being less of a huge part of people's lives is that after Brexit there was this huge surge in unionists choosing to applying for Irish passports when before to own an Irish passport was sort of that was aligning with your ethnic community of being Irish you know that part of the good friday agreement where you were allowed to choose what your passport was was a huge part of people's alignment to their communities and now with this huge boost of unionists applying for Irish passports it's sort of like this conflict is no longer as salient as important in people's lives as it that it used to be
0: yeah and uh, as we mentioned earlier about the whole unionist uh, perspective there's a, a growth in support for the uh, the traditional unionist voice i believe they're called the TUV who have um, sort of are rising to around about 10% in the polls, if you look at the last poll which was done by the Belfast Telegraph and they're on course to replace the UUP as the second largest Unionist party and realistically the DUP's support seems to have gone to the TUV. Again, I think this is a a symbol of you've got really one strong Republican party and you've got two strong and and a sort of outlier on the Unionist side where they're all in agreement with what they think the right way for Northern Ireland to go forward. They disagree on different sort of social issues and I feel as though they'd be much better as a broad church party rather than having three differently entrenched parties in different positions on social issues because they're all united by one I say united um, they're all united by one idea and one overarching ideology which is that Northern Ireland is better off in the UK however wrong or right you may think that is but I think one thing that we can all certainly agree on is the fact that in the next assembly election in Northern Ireland, it's going to be a very interesting set of results, depending on what happens. If Sinn Féin become the largest party, if the Alliance do overtake one of the Unionist parties as the second largest party, there's going to be a strong interest in what happens in these elections. And I think it's this election is key for Northern Ireland to decide which way it wants to go in the future. However, you know, I think we've I think we've gone on enough about uh, Northern Ireland today and I think we've kind of explained everything that we kind of wanted to to explain and we've talked about the parties and the setting of Northern Irish politics and sort of how Northern Irish politics work. I'd like to thank Maeve obviously my co-host for coming on today and I'd especially like to thank Will King who has been our first guest on the Politicking podcast but I'm sure he won't be the last one. In the next episode we'll be discussing Brexit so from Northern Ireland to Brexit we're still staying on the controversial field. But yeah, we hope you can join us for the next episode and thank you very much for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you'd like to check out any of the TV shows, documentaries or films that we mentioned throughout, they'll be listed in the description below along with where you can find them. We'd like to give a special thanks to University Radio York for helping us produce this podcast and also to Jonathan Cook, who made all the
2: jingles that you hear throughout this episode.